Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. There's a theory about life that compares it to an echo. When you yell, I love you, into a canyon, you hear, I love you back. When you yell, I hate you, into that same canyon, you hear back, I hate you. What we put into the world is, generally speaking, what we get in return. People are usually the same. When you put kind actions into your daily interactions with others, you will generally get kindness back. Deal only in anger with others, and anger tends to be the response. This is why Maggie and I as teachers vow to put as much good, as much empathy, as much love into this world as we can. We want to think that if we are better, then we can make the world better. Sometimes, unfortunately though, the world has ideas of its own. Sometimes, all you give is love, yet you get mistreated as a response. We hurt as a whole when the love we betray is innocence. When we mistreat a kindness that doesn't question nor betray the goodness of a child. Politician Tom Allen said, quote, I think we have a moral obligation to our children that can be easily summarized. Number one, protect them from harm, end quote. That's it. Innocent children need adult ambassadors to fight for them. But that protection can't take breaks because danger doesn't. I only wish that a child in our case today had only heard kind words. I love yous, and it's going to be okay, instead of witnessing acts of violence and hatred. Harm came uninvited to him one evening in January of 1984, and his family is still searching the answers to who betrayed the trust of a child, and perhaps even more confounding, why. This is the story of Gary Grant Jr. Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the cases will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. 
With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, because, as we all know, conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness, helping keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Gary Grant Sr. and his wife, May, welcomed a bouncing baby boy into this world on March 8th, 1976. With two daughters already, the Atlantic City, New Jersey family felt complete. And busy. (laughs) Very busy. (laughs) Gary Grant Sr. spent hours and hours making sure not only his own family, but others in their middle-class neighborhood felt safe since he was a police detective in the area. So, like, who better to look out for your family, right? have in your neighborhood. Exactly. Even though years later, when their youngest child... Gary Grant Jr. was only seven years old, Gary Sr. and his wife made divorced, the need to protect his children and to spend time with them did not end. So he remained active exactly. in their life. Yes, both Gary Sr. and May were actively co-parenting the children and were actively, as you said, Maggie, involved in the activities that the children enjoyed. Gary Sr. even coached basketball at the Our Lady Star of the Sea School (laughs) where Gary Jr. attended, and he would often have his son help him out at practices. So is this like a private school? Because that's a weird I am guessing so. Yeah, that is an odd. It sounds like a, almost like Like a a parochial school. school. Yeah. So when, according to an article by Linda Cohen, one of Gary Sr.'s daughters interrupted the basketball practice to ask her dad if he had seen little Gary. Oh, little Gary. I know. He knew something was wrong. Based on every source I read, Maggie, the day had started out as a wonderful day, especially because it was a day off from school Yes. to accommodate for the teachers to be able to use the day for parent-teacher conferences. Yes! Uh, this is a phenomenal idea. Or grading paper. Or that. So for most kids, Gary Jr. included, this was a day to look forward to playing with friends, right? So he gets the day off, right? And it's a welcomed break in the middle of a school week. Which is, again, sounds wonderful. I'm all for it. It seemed to his mother, May, that little Gary, though, already had a plan for this day. See, Gary Jr. had a lot of friends in the neighborhood, including a little girl down the street who he had a crush on. Seven. Yeah. That's cute. I know. So when little Gary announced at the table that Thursday, that he would be out playing all day and that he had an appointment at 2.30. May assumed that that was his way of referring to a date with his girlfriend. That's Right? He's got an appointment. And Maggie, I totally get this. I've never told you this story, but one time a few years ago, I was helping my little sleuth hound to straighten her bedroom, and she was about seven or eight at the time, and I came across this change purse, right? And I was like, I I could see that on the 
bottom side of it, there was a piece of paper that was taped uh-huh. to it. And I was like, what the heck is this? So I flip it over and there was money in it. And on the piece of paper that was attached, Little Sleuth Hound had written, quote, to be saved for when time travel is possible. <laughs> she had written on it. So, like, I mean, where does this stuff come from? But at that age, you know, kids say... They're so imaginative. Exactly. They say and do the strangest things. The darndest things. And the funniest things. So, I totally get why when he had said appointment, that his mom had just kind of laughed it off, thinking that was his way of keeping this you know, little meeting with a girl secret. In fact, in one interview, his mother may said, quote, I was asking him with who, right? right. He had this appointment and he said it was a secret. Oh. So I thought, you know, it's silly. You know, he's a little boy, something to do maybe with his little girlfriend around the corner or something. So I left it at that. He wanted to go out and play. So he got dressed and he went out to play, end so cool. quote. So I'm guessing that this quote-unquote appointment wasn't as innocent as what his mom may have thought it to be. Right. And that's what we're thinking now, because it wasn't until later that both his mother and his father began to question his use of that word. When Gary bounded out of the house at noon, though, and promised to be home by four, right, this is what he tells his mom, May didn't question him, right? She was like, okay, he does this all the time. And this is a different time, too. Exactly. And he had always returned home when he was supposed to. And she said, I loved this, that she knew he would return because, and I quote, he liked his dinner. And Maggie, me too. I feel you, little Gary. I I feel you. I'm not missing dinner. I love Right, I'll be back. Anthony's like, oh, I didn't eat lunch today. And I'm like, excuse me, how could you not? Right, how could you miss something that important? We have all five minutes to eat, and I eat five minutes. (laughs) Or stuff our faces as we're like in between asking questions. Today we're talking about characterism. (laughs) (laughs) Well, four o'clock came, though, and it went. And no Gary Jr. Oh, no. And at first, May wasn't really worried. Right. Maybe because just a little late. Right. He's only seven. He'd been so excited to hang out with his friends. And, I mean, really, how much do kids pay attention to the time? Right? They're not going to be like, oh, 3.59. And it's not like walk he had a phone she could text him and be like, don't forget. Exactly. Or, you know, a watch to set a reminder or whatever. Exactly. But then 4.30 passed. And no Gary. Well, after trying to be patient and wait by the door, May decided to walk down the street to the home where two of his friends lived and ask the girls, one of which was the little girl he had a crush on, if they had seen Gary Jr. When she saw the little girls, they told May that Gary Jr. had been there, but that he had left. And when he did, he said he needed to be home by 430, that he was on his way home. So she goes back home and she's like, okay, maybe I just missed him. Yeah. She gets back. He's not there. Oh, I'm going to, I would be in panic mode. When she had not heard from Gary by 630 and he had missed supper. We got a problem. Right. She knew she had to reach out to Gary Sr. and let him know. Yeah. And that leads us, Maggie, to that moment when I mentioned to you that one of Gary Sr.'s daughters came to the school looking for her brother and asking if her father had seen him. Well, Maggie, after Gary Sr.'s daughter came by, he received a phone call from his ex-wife, May, letting him know that Gary was 
missing. So not only did his daughter go to tell him. So did the mom send the daughter to the dad? I didn't read anywhere that she so did. So the daughter must have came from. Right, must have known right. that he was missing. Gary Sr., remember, he's a police detective. Mm -hmm. He was supposed to go in that night at midnight to begin his shift, but he ended up calling off of work to search for his son instead, which, uh, again, I would totally do. And I'm sure he never imagined, Maggie, that when he made the career decision to become a police detective, that one of the cases he would be investigating would involve his own child. Can you do that? We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that because that's a wonderful question. Gary Sr. himself searched until 1 to 2 a.m. before the rest of the Atlantic City Police Force joined in the efforts. I guess, I don't know. You'd think with a child that young, it would be. Yeah, because even I know we talked about this, I think with the Amy Mahalovic case, when Anthony and I went to Washington, I asked how quickly. FBI becomes involved in cases, and he said with children, it's almost immediately. Right. So, so I feel like it should be faster than that. Right, because we knew at 6.30. Yeah. That's when she's at least contacting him, and then I guess they would then go to file okay. that formal report. So maybe report, there was a, yeah, like maybe a five there was hour, a, which is pretty quick, but yeah. I mean, as a parent, you're going to feel like that's forever. Yeah. What was probably one of the hardest parts, and this is what you were talking about, Maggie, though it gets a little tricky later on. You'll see why here in a minute. What was probably one of the hardest parts for Gary Sr. had to have been when, due to, quote-unquote, regulations, he had to be taken off of the search. Like, even as just a volunteer, like as a parent, he could be there? Now, he did continue on his own, but he couldn't be an official official, representative. But he could be there as, like, the dad. Right. And... So he wasn't privy to any of that police info right. and all that. And, and that had to be hard, too, as a police detective. to. And this is your own child. I'd be, like, sneaking into the file <laughs> right. like reading those, people's things. Like Tom Cruise movies. Yeah. Like, you're hanging down on a wire. Stepping over like, the laser beams. <laughs> to get the info. And so even though he did continue on his own, like I said, I never even thought until we started talking about how hard it would be for that to be your job, right, as a detective, and not be able to put in that same effort into the search for your own child, to have access to the same resources. Yeah, because I feel like you would be super on top of every tip that came in, every clue. Right. And he did still continue, as I mentioned, and I would have as well, to interview anyone and everyone who had mentioned having spent time with his son that Thursday. Okay. Right? So he, if he hears something, he can still, as a person... Just go ask. Right. And so he did. Craig Berry reported in an article that Gary Sr. had literally gone door to door distributing pictures of his little boy and asking if anyone had seen anything. And I can only imagine that the pictures he passed out would be like this one, Maggie, one that you sleuthhounds will post on all of our social media for you to see his and precious it's, face. Oh my God, it's so precious. He's missing the little teeth, and it's oh, oh my God, he's, he's so cute. He's got these chubby yeah. cheeks and this always oh, dark brown hair. He's, he's so cute. So cute. 
In an interview, Gary Sr. said of his search, quote, I started searching every possible place I could think of. I started searching abandoned houses. I started searching underneath the boardwalk. I started searching arcades and questioning people who were working in the arcades. By Friday night, it started getting dark again and still no sign or no word of Gary. I started then looking in alleyways and trash cans and dumpsters. The streets can be pretty mean for an adult, let alone for a seven-year-old child. And by that time, I was fearing the worst, end quote. I think that would be so sad to get to the realization that you were no longer looking for a missing child or your missing child, but maybe your deceased child. Yeah, I can't imagine how that switch happens in your head. Yeah, how you ever give up. But, I mean, I guess eventually you have to try to face... Right, reality. I don't know if I ever would. Right. And we mentioned this earlier, that word appointment just kept ringing in Gary Sr.'s ears. According to an interview in an article by Linda Cohen, Gary Sr. stated, quote, someone had to tell him to say that. Seven-year-olds don't talk like that. Yeah, I feel like an appointment is, like, the word appointment is a pretty, like, mature word for a seven-year-old. Yeah, because he might have said, oh, I have a date, or I have, I don't know. I don't even know. A meeting. Yeah, I just feel like even, like, that wordage, like... I have a meeting I have to go to. That's true. It's, like, just strange for a kid that young. Yeah, an appointment sounds super official. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I feel like someone would have to say, like, tell your parents you have an appointment, you know? Right. Because where is he going to hear that, like, phrase? Right. Other than, like... Like a doctor's appointment or something. Right. Well, Maggie, the story of a missing child spread quickly throughout the neighborhood, both by word of mouth and from an article that ran in the paper. So at least the newspaper, the media is getting involved. Yes. One man, the New Jersey Commissioner of Environmental Protection, his name was Robert Huey, recognized that the area from which the boy had gone missing was near a warehouse he owned and decided to aid in the search. So there's a warehouse in this subdivision? Right. In this neighborhood? It's in this neighborhood. And what gave Huey pause was that on that day, right, when this disappearance happened that he was reading about in the paper, he had seen a young boy walking in the lots beside his warehouse, but obviously had thought nothing of it because, according to him, kids cut through his lot all the time to get to a nearby park. I just keep having to remind myself that this was like a different time because I'm trying to picture like when I become a parent, letting my seven year old freely wander through a neighborhood. And I will say, I mean, times obviously are different now. Right. I mean, even 20 years ago, you would probably let your kid walk down the street or ride a bike around the neighborhood to get to a friend's house. It makes me more nervous today. Yeah, because even in, out my, mine and Anthony's subdivision is a nice subdivision, and I see kids all the time riding their bikes back and forth, mm-hmm. and I'm like, never with mine. Right. Mm-mm. Well, so, I mean, he had seen these kids cut through all the time, but he re- was reminded of the fact that he saw a little boy walking through it when he read this newspaper article, so he decided, you know what, it's worth checking out. Yeah. Right. According to an article by Philip Shannon from January 16th, 1984, 
At school the next day, Gary Jr.'s teacher at Our Lady Star of the Sea School, Connie Kirk, struggled with what to say to her class about Gary's disappearance. Ultimately, she decided not to speak of it to the children, thinking that she would instead let the individual families determine the best way to handle this conversation with their children. And Maggie, how would you even begin to explain why such an outgoing and loving little boy was just gone? Because I can't imagine how to explain that to adults let alone how to explain it to his seven and eight-year-old classmates. Part of me gets it, but then part of me wants to say, was the school involved? Were his friends questioned? Because maybe they knew who this appointment was with. You know, maybe they know more than what he would tell his mom. And then the more you shelter, maybe it's also unanswered questions. Well, the good news is that you listeners, right, the ones involved in this story... Are adults today. And so even if somebody didn't speak with you at the time, if there's something that you remember... It's never too late to no, say... No, never too late to say, you know what? Nobody ever asked me this. But I remember... Right. Here's something that I recall from that time. At 3.30 on Saturday, January 14th, Robert Huey arrived at his warehouse to begin searching his property. And it wasn't long before he contacted police about a disturbing discovery. Oh, no. In an empty lot at the warehouse, less than two blocks from Gary Jr.'s home, there lay his lifeless body wrapped in a rug. Gary Jr. had been beaten to death with a lead pipe that also still lay nearby. That is very violent. Very violent. Right about the time that the police arrived at the scene, Gary Sr. had been driving by. And when he saw all of the lights, yes, from the cars, he knew what that must mean. And years on the job had taught him what a crime scene looks like from afar. So Gary Sr. came running and had to be restrained when he got close enough to realize that it was his baby boy being cradled in that rug and that literally breaks my heart for him like I love like the relationship that you see between like dads Mm -hmm. and their kids Mm -hmm. and like that just I think that shatters my heart for him it breaks my heart for his dad like I can't imagine that knowing what it is before you even come up on the scene well I feel like there's things like like, I always knew if my mom, like, picked me up unexpectedly from school. Something, something was, was wrong. wrong. Right. And so then it's like that dread when you're trying to figure out. And I can remember, like, one day she picked me up, like, met me at the bus stop. And normally she wouldn't oh. do that when I was older. And so immediately, like, the first question I said was, who died? Right. And, like, I'm, I was wrong? like, is Poppy okay? Like, I'm going through right. all these people. You know, so I can only imagine if it's your child and you come to that realization. And Maggie, there's no consolation that you can say to a parent who loses a child, no matter how that loss occurs. I mean, I feel like we need to be so much better as a society at learning how to help parents to deal with that loss 
at the same time that we have to recognize that unless you have experienced that pain firsthand, in my opinion, you can't understand what that pain feels like. Yeah, I think because my mom always says, like about my brother, parents should never have to bury a child. Right. It's a, it breaks, like, I don't even know how to say Everything that you think yeah. is right about the world. Yeah, it breaks, like, the normal pattern of mm-hmm. things. Like, parents should be buried by their child, not the opposite way around. Right. And to me, that has to be the deepest pain that one can feel. And I pray for the healing of everyone who knows the depth of that kind of ache. And the only consolation, and I hate to even use that word, Maggie, because like I just said, there's no real consolation, was that there was an early lead toward catching the person police believed was responsible. One young boy interviewed by the police in the search for Gary Jr. reported that he had seen Gary with a 12-year-old boy from the neighborhood named Carl Mason. That's a pretty big age difference to be playing. Seven and 12. Yeah. Yes. Carl stated that he himself had seen Gary near the junior high and admitted that on Wednesday, the day before the disappearance, he had been riding bikes with Gary to the Texas Avenue Park. He also admitted, as reported by the television show Unsolved Mysteries, that he had made plans to, on Wednesday, meet up again with Gary on Thursday, but that Gary had not shown up. But why are you playing with a seven-year-old? Well, I'm going to get to that. In direct contrast, however, there were several children and others in the neighborhood who had said that they had seen Gary Jr. with Carl on Thursday. So Carl's saying, yeah, we were supposed to meet up on Thursday, but I never showed up. But then all these other people are saying, no, I I saw them together. And I'm so bad about this, though, because, you know... Here's what goes through my mind. Rodney and I will be talking, and I'll say something like, oh, I started working on our taxes last week. And he'll be like, "Mm, Allison, you started them two and a half weeks ago. Or I'll be like, the other day I did this, and it's like six years ago. (laughs) I know. And I'm like, did I? Like, has it been that long? And so part of me is thinking... You know, here's why I'm torn. I think that some of the things that we discussed in the the Ketty murder episode, remember when we were talking about people who witnessed the potential murderers in the bar and they would have seen them and remembered seeing them, but they might not have remembered when. Yeah. I wonder if seeing Gary and Carl together on Wednesday, are they, when they're asked later, are they like, nope, I saw them together and it was Thursday. Because I feel like, okay, even us, like... If the attendance lady says, was so-and-so at school yesterday, right. unless I had, like, something happen, something happen in yeah. that class or, like, that kid says something really funny or, you know, right. something memorable happened, I'm not going to remember, oh, yeah, he was in class. Like, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Right. And so <laughs> that's where I'm torn on this. Right. Well, the police did call Carl's grandmother, he lived with his grandmother, and had her bring him to the police station at midnight Oh my God! on the 14th. So very late. The police interviewed this 12-year-old boy separated from his grandmother. Is that legal? Well, we'll get to the problems with that in a second. For three straight hours, drilling him with questions. I would be like, first off, I'm cranky when I don't have enough sleep. 
So right. you're going to get a bunch of attitude from me if you're keeping me up that late at night. And this is a 12-year-old for three hours. Mm, no, ma'am. What, at 3 a.m., after those grueling hours of questioning and after not consulting his grandmother about their right to hire huh. a lawyer, Carl finally said that he had hit Gary Jr. and had left when Gary fell and didn't move. But if you don't read the Miranda rights to people, is all of that, I don't really know, like, all the, you know, legalities. But don't you have to tell them that they have that right? You or do. things that they say are dismissed, like right. they can be dismissed? Yes, and that is, mm. you're going to hear that here in just a minute. Well, Unsolved Mysteries reported that the police decided that Carl, quote, knew things only the killer would know, end quote, and they, the police, typed up a confession for Carl and his grandmother to sign. And apparently, Carl kept saying that he didn't kill his friend. That's what he kept repeating. But he thought that signing the form would mean that he would get to go home. And he signed it. Okay, so a lot of this is just wrong to me because I'm thinking about all of... So I teach freshmen, so you're like 14, so you're really not mm-hmm. that much older no, than Carl. No, So I'm thinking about my kids in an interrogation room alone. One, you're going to be... Right. I don't care terrified. who you are, you're going to be scared. I'd be terrified. Yes, I'd be weeping. Innocent, I yes. would be terrified. Yes. You're without your... A guardian. Right. No one's in there. You're mm-hmm. with, I'm sure, fully clothed, like not plain dressed police officers. Right. I'm like, sure, in full uniform. And you're tired. Mm-hmm. It's 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of them are probably going to be confused. And so if they're like, well, if I can go home and go to bed, just give me the paper to sign. Right. And Maggie, you're going to get as up in arms about this as I am because there's a detail that I haven't told you oh, yet. Lord. I know from the outside, to some people, it might seem like Carl is guilty of killing his friend, right? He keeps saying he didn't, but then eventually he says, okay, I did. I hit him until he didn't move. And I understand that what I'm going to tell you doesn't necessarily mean that Carl didn't kill him. It's not a detail that doesn't mean that that fact couldn't be true, But it makes me even more concerned about the tactics used by the police. Carl Mason was developmentally challenged. Even though he was five years older than Gary, and you noted that age difference, he was smaller in height and weight, and he had an IQ of 65 which would mean, in terms of everyday tasks, he could learn to care for himself and could perform routine jobs and eventually could live and care for himself independently. But Maggie, I'm talking about the possibilities, the potentials, when he's an adult. And at the time, he's just a child himself. So even though there's an age difference, they're much more on the the same same level. level. So mentally, there's not that big of a difference. Right. And so I feel like if that's the case, there should have been even more precautions exactly. or things put into place right. for this interrogation with a child that... Again, was, instead of yeah. taking your guardian away and interrogating you for three hours. Yeah, because I think about like in school, the accommodations that are made for students who are developmentally challenged. Right. I'm thinking they get a reader, they get an interpreter, right. they get right. all of this. Maybe he didn't understand the questions exactly. that were being asked. 
Yep. And according to Carl himself, here's what he had to say about the confession. Quote, I didn't have anything to do with his murder. The one cop said, if you admit that you did it, we'll let you go home. So me, at the age of 12, I was so tired and I said, if you say so, but I didn't. Then, next thing I knew, I winded up in a home, end quote. And Maggie, what he said is what happened. Even though the police later admitted that Carl's answers in that late night interview were, quote, inconsistent and that his, quote, memories changed, I'm sure because yeah. of the anxiety and stress, he signed the paper confession that police typed up because he and his grandmother were told that they could return home once the papers were signed. But instead of going home, Carl was taken immediately to a juvenile detention center and charged with the murder of his good friend, Gary Jr. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. So my question, okay, another question again, because I don't know. So if somebody, we'll just say George, murders mm-hmm. Tammy mm-hmm. and he confesses to it to the police, does he write his statement or did the police write his statement? I've, I feel like I've seen on documentaries some that are typed, but I feel like the majority of them are handwritten. But I guess if you have someone who is somehow, I guess the police find incapable of writing. So maybe because he was maybe so they young, type it, he, the police did it for him. And they just asked but him I to guess, sign it. So the action, though, is it always completed by the police or is it usually completed by the individual? Like the individual types out their confession of I guilt. think if it's typed, or it would be typed it. by the police. And then it would be read to the person okay. to ask for any changes. Okay. I was just wondering if it was weird that they did it and that But he I think didn't a lot of them it. are handwritten. The whole thing is handwritten. By the by an adult. Okay. The person who's being accused. Right. Okay. Or is giving a confession. The first day in the detention center, Carl was given a polygraph test. And no surprise here, especially given the inconsistent answers that he had given at the police station, the results were inconclusive. A second polygraph test was given as a follow-up the following Wednesday on the 18th, which was, again, inconclusive. The one question, though, Maggie, that was asked of Carl on both tests that did not show signs of deception when he stated that he did not kill Gary Jr. Again, I just go back to students that I have interacted with or just people I know personally that I have interacted with that may be developmentally challenged and I don't see them lying about something like that. Right. They're too, it's just too innocent. There's too much innocence there. Well, what the police and Gary Sr. are now convinced of is that they believe that perhaps Carl wasn't directly involved in the death, but maybe he knows more about the death 
than he's letting on. Maybe even having seen the crime take place. That's kind of where I was feeling too, or Mm -hmm. what I was feeling too, when you were giving some details. Yeah, I agree. So maybe the fear that could lead to inconsistent answers. Maybe. Exactly. But in Linda Cohen's article, we find that about a month later, Superior Court Judge John Himmelberger threw out the confession. Well, good. This is what we're talking about. Saying that Carl Mason's testimony was, or signed confession, was unreliable and could not be admitted into evidence. And without it, the case was dropped and Carl was freed. And after all, we know, Maggie, we were just talking about this, none of the statements made in it were voluntary. Now, what we do know is that Carl's brother had been arrested on robbery charges, and Gary Sr. believes wholeheartedly that Carl's brother had something to do with his son's death. He thinks that Carl's brother had been wanting to use children in the neighborhood to aid in his robbery schemes. Oh, my God. I don't know. I didn't read anything about how. I don't know if he was going to send the kids in because they could fit in smaller spaces or, like, use them to distract the homeowners or something like that. But Gary Sr. is convinced that he was wanting to use children in these robbery schemes and that maybe he had approached Gary Jr., who would have refused, right, knowing it's wrong. Right, because a police officer, yeah. Right. And it's his belief that Carl's brother then killed him to keep him quiet about the scheme, which, again, That's seems extreme. extreme. Yes. The problem is that all of this is just speculation, and Gary Sr. wasn't allowed to be an active part of the case to even know if this were a viable lead, right? Because he, he, he doesn't have the access to that information. Did, I wonder, did he tell people his suspicions? Like, he could still say, like, like a tip or whatever about right. this guy. And again, like, obviously we're not saying any names because he's not a named suspect, Well, Gary Sr. noted in an interview with Ann McGrath for an article published on February 22nd, 1986, quote, for the first two years, I didn't get involved. I didn't think I would be able to handle it at the time. I didn't think I would be objective. After sitting around for two years and nothing happening, I decided then maybe it was time to do something. I'm sitting here, nothing's happening, and meanwhile, my son's in his grave, end quote. And I'm sure that would be like this driving force. Yeah, I need justice. You've got to do something. So in 1986, the Atlantic City Police Chief Joseph Pascal reassigned Gary Sr. to the case. But the prosecutor in Atlantic County, Jeffrey Blitz, he questioned this choice, saying, quote, In my judgment, it's inappropriate for the father of the victim to be a member of the investigation team, end quote. What's your opinion on this, Maggie? I'm torn. That's I feel why. Like, I feel like you would have to be a very, like, particular kind of person. You would have to be able to separate emotions from facts because I think it would be very easy to jump at the first suspect and say, oh, yeah, you, you killed my son. You killed my son. Just because you so badly want that justice for your child, I think it would be really hard to step back and look at it with a critical eye and make sure that you were really taking in all the facts and not just jumping for a piece. I couldn't separate. I don't think I could do it, but maybe he, you know, maybe with the training and stuff like that, he felt he could, but I don't think I could do it. I couldn't. Well, what I will say is that I cannot imagine 
what Linda Cohen reported that Gary Sr., when he was not inside into the case, was having to do, and that was to still drive those same streets in the neighborhood that he per- patrolled near where his son was found. Like, I can't imagine having to drive by it. Every single day. Every day. And in fact, Gary Sr. stated in an interview that, quote, I had to ride by the park God only knows how many times a day, end quote. And that had to be so hard. Not to mention the fact that as a detective himself, as we were just talking about, he would be the first to notice leads that he thought should be followed up on that weren't being followed up on. Right, but are they true leads or are they just like things he wants to be a lead? Well, I'll give you an example. He noted, for instance, that, quote, the gentleman who found the body was never even interviewed. Not until I went to his house and interviewed him, end quote. So, I mean, I think when he's saying that, there are some cases when he has, like, legitimate concerns yeah. for saying these are leads that should be followed up And I up feel like on. that's like a, like a no-brainer. You interview the dude that finds the body. Right. Exactly. Because it's his warehouse, one, and two, he found a body. Right. But as Cohen noted in that article, that's when... Grant said, and this is Grant Sr., said that he was pulled off of the case entirely. So once he starts being like, you know what, if you're not going to follow up on a lead, I'm going to follow up on the lead. Quote, I understand that there are some things you have to distance yourself from as a cop, he said. Even when I was following the investigation on my own, if I thought there was one inkling the person could become a suspect, I wouldn't talk to them. I advised major crimes of every single contact I made or anyone who made contact with me. It wasn't reciprocal, end quote. So I think basically Gary Sr. said, you know, he tried to, he would interview people, but as soon as he thought, oh, there's something sketchy about this person, he would withdraw himself from the situation. Oh, and let someone else. Give that tip to the major crimes unit and have them follow up. But I guess he expected information about that follow-up mm-hmm. in return. And he did not get and it. And he didn't get it. And so he tried to be as professional as possible, but, I mean, he is still a father, first and foremost. And what had to have been the hardest yet is the taunting that came. On January 4th, 1986, at 3 a.m., a call came in that someone had spotted a message written on the side of a police cruiser. This message read, quote, Gary Grant is dead. I am living. Another will die on January 12th, 1986, if all goes right, end quote. Oh, my God. And that date that was written, January 12th, was predicting another death on the same day that Gary Jr. had been murdered. Was it the father's police car that the no, was left on? No, Okay. But a police cruiser. And a few weeks after that, yet another message was found. This one was found scratched in a sidewalk. So this took some time, yeah. like taking a rock, scratching into a sidewalk. I assume a rock, whatever would cut into the surface and it read quote Gary Grant Jr. lives 
I still killed him. Son of a pig officer. Payback is an MF. End quote. That one. One, sounds a little more angry. Yes. Two, what is it talking about? And I question that myself. I think he's saying, like, he lives because his killer still lives? Like, the memory? Oh, okay. I don't know. That might be a little deep, though. That might be a little, like... I also find it very interesting that what MF stands for was not written. It literally said M period F period. Which makes me kind of think that maybe this was like a younger person. That's what it makes me think so, too. it's like they don't want to say it. Right. Spell it out. Right. So we're just going to put the initials so you know what I'm talking and about. And the grammar is so bad. Right. Obviously. Like Grant Jr. lives. I still killed him. Son of a pig officer. What's that even mean? I don't know. Was it was Gary Sr. liked in the community? From everything that I read, I didn't read that he had any enemies. So, But he is an officer, so he is arresting people. This quote, they just almost seem like they come from two different people. I agree. And a lot of people think that because of that second one, that Gary Jr. might have been killed by someone who his father had arrested and who was angry that they had been caught. you got to be a really bad... I'm sorry, you got to be a bad person if that's the reason you kill a child is because their father arrested yes. you. Yes. And now, in addition to the anger that Gary Sr. himself must have felt, right, because his child was murdered, there had to have been a twinge, admittedly undeserving, of guilt, oh, definitely. Especially with that second message. According to Gary Sr. at the time, quote, from what I observed on the car, it appeared to me that it was written on there by an adult. However, as far as ever finding out who did it, we've never found that out, end quote. And Maggie, we still don't know who wrote those messages. All this time, we still have no idea? All this time. And, and I'm with you. I... The first part, the first message, the only reason I would say that's more of an adult is because of the way that the date is written. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like children would be more likely to spell out the month. Yeah. Right? Instead of putting, like, the number slash day slash year. Yeah, because I'm trying to think, like, when I started doing that. Mm-hmm. Like, because I know in elementary school, we always had to write it out. Right. And so, but that second one, I'm with you. Uh, for some reason, they don't jive. They mm-hmm. don't seem like they're from the same no. person. Eventually, it got to be too much for Gary Sr. And, it, you know, he's looking at this every day. So he got as far away as possible. He actually retired to Puerto Rico. But he never stopped searching for justice. Even though we're now 36 years later, Atlanta County Prosecutor Damon Tyner is still searching for answers as well. In fact, in an article just published on January 15th of 2019, so just last year, entitled 35 Years Later, Seven-Year-Old's Murder Remains Unsolved in AC, the writer noted that Tyner was 13, so this Atlanta County prosecutor was 13 at the time of the murder and attended the same school as Gary Jr. He said, quote, 
I remember Gary Jr. not being at my basketball practice because he was missing. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was heightened fear at that time at school because a little kid was missing, and that kind of thing just didn't happen, end quote. Didn't we also, oh, wasn't it the Ketty murder also that, or maybe not, but didn't we do another case that, like, somebody knew or was, like, alive at that time and they were then the investigator? It was the Ketty murder case because one of the investigators had been friends with Dana, right, with the brother's friend who had been killed. As a result, Tyner has vowed that he will not stop until the Grant family has answers. And it seems, Maggie, that there are still clues emerging. In fact, when Gary Sr. retired to Puerto Rico, he was going through evidence of old tapes and converting them to MP3s. Okay. okay? And as reported in an article written by Craig Berry on May 8, 2018, Gary Sr. found an audio recording of a 911 call made on March 8th, 1986. What would have been Gary Jr.'s 10th birthday and another phone call made on June 2nd, 1986. The content of these calls reveals that the person responsible, to me, reveals that the person responsible is still out there and justice can be achieved. Grant Sr. told reporters Amanda Abel and Molly Belinsky that he, quote, almost fell off his chair when he heard these calls. Why are we just now hearing them, though? Like, why is he just now? That, I don't, well, I guess because he was kind of kept away from the investigation for so long, and now he has access to some more of it. That he, and he's trying to convert it to, so to preserve it, because Mm -hmm. we can listen, you can share MP3s a lot easier, obviously, than an old tape. This is the content of the first call. Dispatcher, fire and police, caller, is it possible for me to collect a reward on my own self for the murder of Gary Grant? Dispatcher, Is it for you to collect the reward for yourself? Caller, uh uh-huh. Dispatcher, if you have, yeah, if you have information, what what are you saying? That I don't know what you mean. Like, you know who did it? Something like that, you mean? Caller, no. How's if I did it myself and I want to collect the whole reward? Dispatcher, if you did it? Caller, yeah. Dispatcher, suppose I hook you into the detective bureau. Caller, "Mm, no, that's okay. The dispatcher says something unclear. The caller, unclear at first, but then says, it's not a crank call. You're never going to catch me. Dispatcher, you know what? Caller, you're never going to catch me. And then the dispatcher tries to say, what was that? I didn't hear you. And that was the end of the call. Oh, my goodness. Okay, again, though, unless you're just taunting them at this point, I feel like what sane person is going to call into the police and be like, hey, can I collect the reward money if I'm who murdered someone? That's what makes me think it is a taunt. Right, and especially with how the call ended, because obviously it wasn't serious, because the caller then says, this isn't a prank, 
you're never going to catch me. When did you say this call was, came through? This first call was from March 8th, 1986. So this is a couple of years after Gary Grant Jr.'s murder, because he was murdered in, 19, in January of 1984. I'm just thinking about, like, I remember one time in junior high, some boys in my school called 911 as a prank and, like, hung up. And then the police showed up at their house because they mm-hmm. were able to, I guess, track the number. Was that not but possible? But that's probably, or I don't know, but I'm wondering if that's why she kept trying to say, like, take your time. What? I didn't hear you. To so trying to trace where right, it was Right, to from. keep them on the phone for longer. Mm-hmm. Well, in the second call, according to that same article by Abel and Belinsky, a man stated, quote, I can't give you my name, end quote. But then he gives another name. The man, he says, confessed to killing the young boy found bludgeoned to death in January of 1984. Quote, he told me he killed Gary Grant Jr. because of the father, the man says. Quote, the cops know what he looks like. And then one other source that I read, Maggie, said that the second caller blamed, quote, an arrest the father made, end quote. So like what we said earlier, maybe it was someone who was mad that he, the dad, arrested them. Right. And I think the language of even that comment is interesting to me because he doesn't say that the caller said that the person responsible was mad at his own or her own arrest, but but just just an arrest. And I think that word choice is interesting. Yeah, because I feel like if it was you or, like, me, I would be like, I'm mad because he arrested me. Right. Or not he made an arrest. Right. Mm. Yeah, because of an arrest that the father made. Mm. What's also interesting, though, is that when confronted with the name of the person in that second call, so the, the man, again, in that second call says the name of the person who he says admitted to this death, Gary Sr. doesn't recall having any beef with him. And even though that gentleman was charged with child endangerment and sexual contact with a child under five, he has never been named a suspect in Gary Jr.'s case. But then I feel like the, I keep going back to the word appointment, because mm-hmm. I feel like that is a very, like, sex trafficking thing to say to a child. Oh, just tell your mommy you have an appointment. Mm. You know? Like, I can just, in my mind, like, I picture mm-hmm. a creep saying that to right, a little kid. Right, right. Well, like I said, Maggie, he, even though he has done these horrible things, right, and has been charged with them. He was never named a suspect in Gary Jr.'s case, despite this call that came in naming him. The only named suspect to date has been Carl Mason, who we discussed. And that is even though 500 to 600 people were interviewed over the course of the investigation. That's a lot of people. That is a lot. And that's it, Maggie. Nothing else. No fingerprints on the pipe that I've read about. No blood splatter on clothing. And that's what makes me not convinced that it's Carl. Yeah, because I feel like a 12-year-old is not going to know to wipe a murder weapon off or dispose of bloody clothes. Right. I feel like the grandmother would have seen something or somebody would have seen something. But if not him, then who? According to reporter Craig Berry, quote, 
Children are the epitome of innocence. As parents, we strive to see the smile on their faces and to enjoy life with a creative imagination before having to face the realities of adulthood. When horrible crimes are committed against such purity, people are often left wondering how and why. There are times when those questions get answered. Other times, a resolution doesn't occur. In other instances, justice is in view, but the lack of evidence isn't adequate enough to provide closure, end quote. But Gary Grant Sr. still has hope. Quote, they have a lot more resources than they did in 1984, Grant said. There's a good possibility that they might be able to do something, end quote. He hopes that perhaps someone will hear the voice on the tapes and recognize it, perhaps leading police to the perpetrator. Anyone with information about the case is asked to call the Atlantic City Major Crimes Unit at 609-909-7666. Remember, as Tom Allen intimated in that quote at the beginning of our episode, The wholesomeness of a child must be guarded, period. But with so many children hurting in the world today, we obviously haven't learned this lesson yet. We haven't spoken enough good into the world to hear it in return yet. So we have to keep trying. Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you you next week. week.